So if you are squinting and trying to figure out what I'm reading, or you go, I didn't catch that, and he covered those points too quickly, you can just either type in that web address, scan that QR, and then guess what? You can go to that during the week and refer to that, and, um, and uh, that will be a help to you. And then we'll just keep archiving those pages so it'll essentially serve as uh, your sermon notes from my sermon notes. So you can know if you got the right answer, if your answers match mine. So, um, Hey, how many guys uh, drank the coffee this morning? Yeah? Okay. So I did put, um, it, drink the regular Luma coffee? Yeah? That's the normal, this regular brew. Yeah? Okay. So I did put like um, 30% pinto beans into the coffee this morning. How many guys could tell? No? Yeah, maybe ish. How many guys had decaf? That was 100% pinto beans. That's your welcome for drinking decaf. Um, wow, you guys are either tired or are really worried that I did that to you. I didn't do that to you. Um, but here's the thing um, dirty coffee, um, here, here's a question, and, and it pertains to us something like that is how much, how much pinto beans could I put in the coffee until you guys said, that's not coffee anymore? One, one. I, <laughs> what is it? Uh, I, I, I had some jokes, but I'll, I'll, I'll save them all. Um, here, we're going to be Acts chapter 20, verse 32. And this is a question that we ask ourselves. It, it, it is just like that. And the question is something like this. How much, how much mm, bad or something that doesn't belong can I have before I'm not allowed to call that thing what it's called? Uh, so I think I told you guys this uh, a while ago. But um, Taco Bell, um, was, there was a lawsuit against Taco Bell because um, they claimed to have beef burritos. And there's something like too much non-beef in the beef. And so they had to put like beefy instead of beef because there's not enough beef in the beef to make it beef. Does that make sense? Right? And so like at what percentage does that cross over? Is it like 50% and you're okay, but then like 51% it's not beef anymore? I don't know. But here's the thing. How can, how does something become not what it is, or let me, let me ask it this way in the reverse, how does something become more of what it is? That's the riddle for this morning. How can something become more of what it is? Okay? So I'll just let that sit with you for a second. And while you're thinking about that answer, um, I'll, I'll just jog your memory. So last week, we were um, beginning the, sort of the, the end of Paul's address here to the Ephesian elders and his reminder and his warning to the church. Um, guys, you got to be on the lookout. Because after I leave, fierce wolves are going to come in. They're going to tear apart the flock. And what they're going to do is they're going to entice people, speaking twisted things to draw them away from God's people, God's word, and, and, and they're going to destroy the church, essentially. And so that sobering warning comes to us. And um, so you might wonder, you should wonder, um, did they heed that warning? And the, uh, I'll tell you whether or not they did, and, and you can know this, is in Revelation um, chapter uh, 2. So roughly about 10 years after this, give or take, uh, roughly about 10 years, we get to check in on the church in Ephesus. So um, in the book of Revelation, Jesus addresses seven churches, seven churches, and uh, the church in Ephesus happens to be the first church that he uh, addresses. And uh, so in uh, Revelation chapter 2, roughly 10 years after Paul told the, the Ephesian elders, hey, be on the lookout. Here's what's going to happen. Let's see if they took his advice. So Revelation chapter two, starting in verse four, says this. Now this is Jesus. And, and first he, he gives them a commendation and he's given an identity. He says, I'm the one who, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the lampstands. And then he says, but I, I have this against you 
Now, before he gets to what he has against them, he does commend them for some things. He says, look, you have, um, uh, I've, I know your works, and, and I've seen that you've borne up on, uh, for my name, and that you, have, um, you do not uh, bear with those who claim to be apostles, but are false. So guess what? They did take Paul's warning. They said, hey, well, we're going to test people that come in that, that are going to try to speak words that don't accord with what we've learned from Paul. And, um, and so they've held on to that. And that's a good thing. And, and Christ commends them for it. But then he says, but guess what? I have something against you. So that's, that's where we're at in Revelation. So in verse 4, he says, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. And he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's kind of a sobering idea because on the one hand, they, they did take Paul's advice, but there's something else that, that Jesus is saying, if you don't fix this, it's a problem. I'm going to remove your lampstand. Now, what is it that he's, going to, that he's referring to here? What is it that, that Jesus wants them to do? Well, first he says um, that they've lost their first love. And then he points them to go back to the works they did at first. Now, there's been a lot of different things posited about, like, what, 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 what works could he be talking about? What is the love that's being referenced here? So I, I want to point you to what I think um, is being referenced here. In Ephesus, um, if you remember back in uh, chapter 18, what happens as uh, Paul comes back to Ephesus proper before he begins his full ministry, um, there is people who are becoming believers, and it says in uh, chapter 18, verse 18, that those who were believers began to confess and divulge their practices, and they were burning their, their books, their magic books, just because um, they, they felt that it was the right thing to do, because it didn't accord with the grace that they had been given. Not because Paul had begun to preach, if you don't get rid of these things, you're bad. So something inside of them, maybe the, the love of the grace that they had received had, had told them that doesn't accord with what they should be doing. And so out of that, they begin to do these works. And these are, I believe, the works that Christ is pointing to. The fact that they're going to remove things out of their life, out of their, their um, um, existence that um, don't accord with the new nature that they have. And, and so why did they do this? Was it being demanded by Paul? Was it being something in the word of God? Well, no, it comes from the fact that they loved what was given to them, holiness and grace. So grace took root in their lives and um, everything that didn't fit with this new nature had to be done away with. And Jesus attaches their love and going back to that first love with the works that they did at first. And so the works can't be what Paul's telling them to do because They've already been affirmed for holding fast to doctrine and, and bearing up under um, persecution for, for standing up for his name. And so it's not any of those things that have to do with right thinking. It's not anything that has to do with right thinking. You can think rightly, but not do what you must do. And so there's still a gap in obedience. So he's, he's going back, he's saying like the, the, the sin that that's, um, you're being complacent with is the reason why I'm threatening to remove the lampstand. Now, it bears a question then, what does that mean? That, that Jesus would say, if you don't repent in return, then I'm going to remove your lampstand. Well, a, a lamp, if you light it, you would, you would set it on well, a lampstand. Why? So that it lights the whole, the whole house. And um, Jesus says the same thing about salt and light. How can salt get more salty? How does coffee become more coffee-y or less coffee-y? 
And so however you might answer that question, you, you might be being pointed to some deficit in your understanding of, of what Jesus actually um, wants for us in our Christian life. How does salt get more salty? Well, in Matthew chapter 5, this is uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but it, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. Get the picture here. He's saying, look, salt has a character, and if it loses that character, what's it good for? Well, it's not good for anything. You just throw it away. It's, it's not good for anything. And then he goes, and he, and he uses the same, um, he's making the same point, but he uses a different metaphor, and he moves to light. And he says, if you light a lamp, you don't put it under a basket. Nobody covers up light. They, they put it somewhere where it can be displayed. And, uh, and it can give light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good. What's that word there? Your good works. There's a purpose to the light shining and the light not being obscured and the salt being salty. And so if it becomes less salty, how can it be restored? Or what makes salt more salt? Or what makes coffee more coffee? And so... Can you add more salt to salt to make it salty? Can you add more coffee to coffee to make it coffee? Well, the, the, the picture being drawn here, I'll just relieve the tension because I need you to know this before we keep moving this morning, is this. There's nothing that you add to it that will make it more what it is. You can only take impurity out of it. You can not obscure the lamp so that the light does exactly what light's supposed to do, which is give light, right? So if you light a lamp and you put it under a basket, you're not... You're not taking light away. You're just obscuring what it is. It becomes less pure. Does it make sense? Mm. Does it make sense that the, the, the problem here is purity? And impurity makes something less of what it is. And removing impurity makes it what it is. You can't add more of what it already is that makes it, that, that overcomes the impurity. Does that make sense? Okay. So, so let your light shine so that, oh, ooh. let your light shine so that others uh, may see your good works and they may give glory to, to your Father who is in heaven. Okay, so we're going to be Acts chapter 20, verse 32, and here's what it says. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Now, we, we, we got the beginning of that last week. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able then to build you up and to give you inheritance among all of those who are being sanctified. Now, you might ask, why are we stuck on um, verse 32, Mitch? <laughs> Go ahead and ask. Why are we stuck on verse 32, Mitch? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I did a little math, okay? Paul spent three years teaching, something like probably six days a week, something like on the conservative ed, at least three hours a day, but probably more like six hours a day. So stick with me here if you take the math. Paul taught for three years, for six, three to six hours a day, six days a week. We gather once a week, okay? And I preach on the long end for an hour, but mostly more like 40-ish minutes, okay? So what the Ephesians have that you don't have is something like the equivalent of, if my math is correct, 54 years of preaching. 54 years of Sundays if I preach for an hour every Sunday. And we went on the conservative end that he only taught for three hours a day. So for 54 years... I'd have to preach through this message. And you say, why is particularly this message? Because Paul spends this short sentence 
And then he expands on this sentence in the book of Ephesians. Oh, but that's not enough. He also expands on it to Timothy in the book of Timothy. Oh, and also he, he reiterates the same thing in the book of Romans. So listen, that much teaching that they have that you don't have, I cannot condense that into one message, surely. What my goal is this morning is to not have you walk away saying, I understand everything that there is to know about sanctification. Because you won't. You, you don't have that time. I don't have the breadth to go through all of Scripture to make that happen for you. This is why I'm commending to you Ephesians 1 and 2. If you will read that through this morning, or excuse me, not this morning, not while I'm preaching, please. Listen, read that through this week. There is a guide for you that sort of helps you see where he's expanding these thoughts in Ephesians so that when you read these statements, you can see them happening in Ephesians. So I'm commending that to you this week. So this one statement spans the full spectrum of the Christian life. It's the introduction of grace. It's the commending to God. And that moves all the way to the inheritance that you receive. So it's, it's the beginning and the end. So it's the whole thing. And I'm not going to expound on that in one week. So what is necessary? Well, I want to get to the point where I stoke the fire of sanctification in your heart. That's the most I can hope for. Because what's happened is we generally dismiss any thoughts about sanctification because of grace. We misplace grace or misapprehend what sanctification is. And those two things end up competing for um, your heart and they shouldn't. They're not at odds with one another. And so this morning, I, I think the first thing we need to do is nail down grace. Now you think, I've already got grace. I know what that means. That's the beginning. That's the foundation. That's the anchor point. But it's also the means of continuation. It's the means of sanctification. But if it's not nailed down first, I'm, I'm sending you on a fool's errand. You will sooner empty the ocean with a Dixie cup with no bottom in, no bottom in it than you will accomplish sanctification without having grace nailed down in your heart. Okay? So it's got to be nailed down. And the effects of not having that are going to be devastating. You will be inoculated to the truth and the beauty of what grace really does for you. Or you will become prideful in the pursuit of godly ends. Or you'll be driven to shame or frustration at your own inadequacies when you fail time after time and you still wrestle with sin in your heart. Or you say, well, I... I'm not getting anywhere, and therefore, sanctification must be an illusion. And then you become complacent in sin. And so pursuing sanctification without grace is a bad problem. And um, I'm going to leave that there. I'll pray, and then we'll continue this morning. All right. So, Father, we ask for um, your help in understanding this morning. I ask that you would um, make clear to us what um, needs to be known for um, everybody, and nothing of what I have to say or my agenda. Father, you have spoken in your word, and you've spoken through your son, and now we just ask that what's given to us, that you would help us to steward it into our hearts by your spirit, and we'd apply it to ourselves, that we would find um, a new and renewed sense of pursuit of you, but resting in grace. So, Father, I ask that you, you would just use this time to glorify you, keep me from air, open our hearts, ears, and eyes to what you would have. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. amen. I've got to hunt for this, so forgive me for just a second. Okay. This is what I wanted to get before we got going. Disconnected from grace, the pursuit of sanctification can result in some different things. You might have 
a right understanding of what sanctification is, but the wrong power. Like you're trying to do it the wrong way, and then you're going to give useless effort towards that end. So you'll say something like, I can do it. I can do it. I can get to sanctification. I'll just try harder, which is the right understanding of what sanctification is, but the wrong power, okay? Or you might have wrong understanding with no power and useless effort, which is something like, I must do it, which is the wrong understanding of what sanctification is, not applying any power, and therefore you're, you're, you're giving a useless effort to any ends at all. But I'm saying, I must do something more. Wrong understanding with the right power. So saying, I, I don't understand that sanctification calls me to be more pure and holy, but I, I, I do it um, with, with uh, the right effort, or excuse me, right power, but no effort. So you rely on the Holy Spirit and you say, I don't, I don't do anything, right? I don't need any help uh, because grace has got me there. And then finally is right understanding with the right power with no effort. I won't or can't do anything. It's all covered under grace. There's, there, sanctification is not really any kind of um, separate thing from, um, from grace. And therefore, um, I can just remain how I am. So this, these, are, these are why I want you to have grace nailed down and the results of when you disconnect grace from sanctification. So sorry that goes up here. And now we'll get to grace. Okay. So he says, look, I'm commending you to God and to the word of his grace. And grace stands as like this anchor point in the middle of the sentence. But it's what comes before it and after it that's important. So grace is the acknowledgement that God alone is the power of salvation. The foundation of faith is grace. And the foundation of grace is that God alone is the worker of salvation. And therefore, he is the sole deserving recipient of glory. You, you know this in a much shorter way. In Ephesians 2, right? Here it is. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Okay, so faith puts its, its faith, its substance into grace. And because it's grace, this is not of your own doing. It's God's own doing and it is the gift of God, not a result of anything that you have done, will do, was foreseen before, whatever, right? Erase all of that out of your mind. It is a gift of God. It's free so that no one gets the credit. No one can boast before God that I'm saved for something I've done. This is a, 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 a theological word, monergism. Mono means one, ergo is work. So there is one working in salvation. Now you hear that and you think, I got that. I know that. I believe that. But, but, and then you become allergic to the idea of effort. The idea of effort as though that means that there's nothing to do after grace. There's, there's no output from you, okay? And that's not the case. So, God the Father works in his plan. He sends the Son. The Son accomplishes all the works, is uh, crucified, is resurrected, and that, that um, payment is applied to you by the Spirit. And now we live in the age of the Spirit in which he equips us to do this. So turn your attention back to the text, if you would, in Acts 20. Now I commend you to God. The word commend there is literally, I entrust you to God. Essentially this, not that they were ever in Paul's hands. I'm, I'm entrusting you to who you were always meant to be in. You are entrusted to God because he's the only one that saves. And he's the only one that can keep to God himself. The word there is literally, I lay you beside God. I'm entrusting you to him because he will keep you. When Jesus says, I know all those who are mine and no one can snatch them out of my hand. That's the passage from last week where Jesus is saying, I'm the good shepherd. Okay, and all of that 
So he says, I, I commend you to God, but also to the word of his grace. This is the gospel truth. Not the gospel as, hey, do you not want to go to hell? I have a solution for that. That's not the gospel truth. The gospel truth is that there was a plan that was hidden and revealed in Christ. That through God coming in the form of man, that he would pay the ultimate penalty. This is all in Ephesians. And so let me get you to that overlay. I commend you to God. Ephesians 1 and 2, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, will uh, reiterate those same things, that God had a plan that it was known only to him. I can't preach this. I'm sorry. I have to not go through the Ephesians part of it, but I'm just reminding you why I have it there. So he says, to the word of his grace, which is the gospel, okay? The gospel truth that God saved lost people. Grace has ongoing relevance beyond the justification point, though. Why? Because he says it's able to build you up. It, more than it, not more, but beyond salvation, beyond justification, is that it's going to build you up and give you an inheritance. There's both the, the, the means of pro- progress and also the end point of it. Ephesians 2, you were lost and dead in your trespasses and your sins, but Christ rescued you. He redeemed you. He translated you. He moved you from darkness to light. You were not a son, and now you are a son. You were an enemy, and now you are a friend. Okay, do you see that there's something new happening in that? You are a citizen of a kingdom, and you partake in this through faith, and God gives you something. First, he gives you a new birth, and then he gives you the spirit, which is, we're, we're told, the seal of our redemption and the down payment of our inheritance. The down payment, the earnest money. It's the thing that God gives you of himself that he's not going to lose. It's the assurance of, the, of the, the fact that something's really happened. The Holy Spirit is the earnest deposit in your life, the down payment on inheritance. An inheritance is something you do not earn. An inheritance is something you can't, you can't grab, you can't do anything other than what being part of the family and having it willed to you. And he says, and if you're a son, then you're an heir. So that's why it's important that you have received adoption as sons. Now you say, but I'm a daughter. Well, you want to be adoption as sons because sons get the inheritance. And it's Christ who gets the full inheritance and he shares that with all those who belong to him, okay? So the inheritance is what we're being built towards. And the Holy Spirit is the seal and uh, an earnest deposit on that. And he says that he's, he's building us up among a people that God has um, not just redeemed you, but he's placed you not alone, but amongst a group of people. He's, he, there's various metaphors used over and over throughout scripture. He's building a temple and you're a living stone. He's building a house and it's built on the foundation and the cornerstone of the prophets and the apostles and, and Jesus himself. So there's various metaphors that are coming together and shows us that we are part of a collective who are built together for God's glory among those who are being, and then there's our or $100, however many dollars, 52 years of teaching gets. Sanctified, sanctified. Among those who are sanctified. So, there's three tests here. Now, you say, "I I need to know whether or not I've departed grace or if I have grace nailed down before we ever approach the truths of what sanctification demands. What does sanctification demand? Well, well, we'll get to that definition in just a second. But these tests will help you have insight onto why I'm saying what I'm saying. So ask yourself this question. Are you pursuing spirit-driven effort in holiness? 
Meaning, are you, are you putting out effort? Are you saying, by grace we're saved and there's nothing else to do? So I'm not putting any effort out. Well, is there effort in your life? Uh, and if you say yes, then the, the qualifier on that is, is it spirit-driven effort? Or is it you trying to conform? Is it you trying to perform in your own, in your own merit, in your own work, in your own efforts? So that's the first question. The second is, is there a true battle to kill sin in your life with some measure of victory, with a tangible measure of victory? Are you putting out effort? Are you trying to kill sin and get rid of the things in your heart and your life that don't accord with a new reality? Is that happening in you? Okay? And then three combines those two things and says, are you pursuing holiness and fighting sin by remaining in grace? So you don't depart grace to then start a journey of your own effort to get to sanctification. And you, you, you don't make it by not, by not getting rid of anything and not putting out effort and not killing sin in your life. Or you don't just say, well, I keep going back to the same sin. And I'm not really having any victory. Well, that, all of three of those things, if you fail any point of that test, go back to, to one, which is grace. Because you probably have not truly apprehended and nailed down grace in your heart. And I say that because my concern for you is that you would move past, move past grace to sanctification and cause yourself all kinds of hurt. Okay? Don't do that. Okay, why? Sanctification, okay? Sanctification is not something that you make happen. It's something that is done for you and to you. It is a declaration over you. When you are saved, you are sanctified. The chain of redemption says those who are called, those who are justified, those who are justified, also uh, um, sanctified, and those who are sanctified, he will also glorify. Listen, it's, it's part of the declaration over you. Sanctification literally means you have been holied. You've been set apart. When it says those who are sanctified as a present uh, passive participle, that means it's something that's done to you, happened in the past, but has ongoing effects. That's just some fancy Greek to say it's God doing it for you. It's a declaration over your life. You are salt. How do you become more salty? It's not by adding more salt to your life. We have the idea that to be sanctified, I must perform more and more holy deeds to add to my sanctification. I will become more sanctified as I become holier. This is a wrong apprehension. You have been sanctified, set apart, called God's own. I, I, I'm, I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to dwell in you. So be separate. Purify yourself. Okay? You have been made an honorary vessel, an honorable vessel. This is in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, just listen to this. Okay? So after... Um, Paul's been giving this metaphor about people being built together as a house. He says, but God's firm foundation, this is 2 Timothy chapter 2, and starting in verse 19. God's firm foundation stands, and it bears this seal. So the foundation of God's building stands, and it says, the Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord will depart from iniquity. God knows those who are truly in and who are not in. Okay? And everyone that actually bears the name of God, that has been redeemed, really and truly, will depart from sin, will purify themselves, okay? He goes on and says, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, okay? So he, remember he's saying, there's a great house, and there's two kinds of vessels in there. There's um, fancy, if you want to think about it that way, lasting vessels, precious vessels, 
gold and silver, but then there's also things that are like um, not as precious. They're, they're wood and clay, and some are for honorable use, and some are for dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel of honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Just scribble down 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 19 uh, through 22 for your own edification. You can read that again later. Essentially, he's saying this. In, in, the, in the house of the Lord, there's two kinds of people. Some people might outwardly proclaim that they're part of this union. But he says they're like wood and, and, um, and clay. They're, they're dishonorable vessels. But whoever really does cleanse themselves, purify themselves from what's unholy are these lasting vessels. They're precious. So therefore, cleanse yourself. Like he says, flee Flee youthful passions and then pursue righteousness. This is the same guy that said it's grace through faith. He's telling you to effort, to put something out. So holying is essentially the, the root of sanctification, a designation that makes you distinct, like calling you one of my own, calling you a son, calling you a daughter, adopting you, giving you his spirit. So you're set apart as for purity. So you've been, you really are this thing. You really are this vessel. Now act like it is essentially what sanctification is. How do you do that? By not putting bad stuff in the precious vessel. Don't use your drinking cup as a bedpan. Okay? Like, duh, you understand this. But that's essentially what it is to say, by grace I'm saved and no more. Okay? It's to continue to put impure things into a holy vessel. So sanctification and I'm going to use a fancy word and define it, is an ontological reality of regeneration and a new birth. Ontological means the, 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 the nature of being. It is what it is. Okay? The ontological reality of the new birth means that you really are a precious vessel. And if that's true, that's going to result in those three tests being able to say yes Without that truth, you will, you can strive, you can work, but that won't ever really be true. There won't be a conflict in you as you put dirty things in this vessel. In your heart, you go, I, I know this is maybe kind of like the wrong thing to do, but it doesn't really bother me. There's no battle against sin. There's no war. Okay? And if you're not resting in grace, then you're not going back to the only means that you have every time you fail. Every time you fail, if you say, well, I guess I can't do it. I'm not going to achieve sanctification. Duh. Okay? You continue in grace because you go back to the throne of grace because it's the only means of your acceptance so that your striving is real, your battle is real, but the means of moving forward never moves from God to you. He's already done it, but you are going to effort into that. Okay. This is the Second London Baptist Confession. Chapter 13 deals with sanctification. If you don't like what Mitch has to say about it, go with some smart people, okay? This is the confession of our faith about sanctification. I just want you to see why I say it's the truth of the reality that ontologically, that means like what you really are must result in sanctification. It's not like an optional thing. Okay, I'm saved and then I'll move to sanctification. No, 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 no. Those who are united to Christ, effectually called, regenerated, having a new heart, 
and a new spirit. Stop. The old has gone. The new has come. You have a brand new thing. And that brand new thing doesn't like impure things. That's why there's a war in you. That's why Romans 7, scribble that one down too, Paul's arguing with himself. Why do I do the thing I don't want to do? Because you still dwell in the flesh. And sin still dwells in your members. But you do have a brand new spirit, a new creation, and that is making war, it should be, against your flesh. So that the new heart and the new spirit are the ontological reality that causes that war. If that doesn't exist, there will be no war. Not in reality. You might conform outwardly to avoid judgment or shame or something like that, but that's not the same thing. So I'm pleading with you not to move past that. Okay? The new spirit is created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. Uh, so are also the farther sanctified. That means moving forth really and personally through the same virtue by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The, dom- the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. He says in Romans, you, you were in sin and it enslaved you. You were a slave to it, but now you're not. You're a slave to righteousness. So move to this other thing. And he, but you're still going to war against it, okay? But the war has to happen. So the lust of the flesh are more and more weakened and mortified. More and more. That means some measure of victory is happening. You're not just saying you're battling against sin and then falling into the same thing. That, that probably means that you're not really in the Holy Spirit working towards sanctification, okay? Now, uh, they're more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of all true holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Acts 20, 32 is the reference point, the very verse we're in, okay? That's the main reference point. This sanctification is throughout the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abide still some remnants of corruption in every part. You will not achieve, quote-unquote, Holiness here, full holiness. We're waiting for that redemption. The resolution at the end of that Romans 7 that's like so devastating, where he's like, I do what I don't want to do. The thing I want to do, I can't do it, right? He says, who will save me from this body of sin? Wretched man that I am. Oh, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, right? He's waiting for this redemption. You will not be saved this side of heaven so long as you dwell in the flesh, but you do have a redeemed spirit and you make war through it. Sanctification throughout the whole man and perfectly in this life um, where uh, arises a continual and irreconcilable war. That's war language. Not like, hmm, I'll give a college try to it, okay? It's a continual effort in your life in which war, although remaining corruption for a time, may prevail, okay? So there's some measure of victory. All right, so you can see that there is, yes, an obligation to understand grace, to have that nailed down, but then also you must move to sanctification. It is part and parcel of grace. It moves you forward. The new birth makes it necessary. I'm going to lose my voice if I keep screaming at you. <laughs> so, sanctification is not at odds with grace. It is not calling you to now move to the realm of works. Okay, now work for or you need to retain your, no, it is what you are. You are a new creation. Now live that out. It is the working out of those things. Some verses that reference work. Work out your faith with fear and trembling. You are God's workmanship created in Christ to do good works. The Ephesians passage that um, we just read, it is God who works, uh, well, this is Philippians 2, it is God who works in you to both will and to work for his good pleasure. 
And then what Jesus says in Matthew 5, so that you, uh, you will shine before all men so they can see your good works and glorify God. It, it never moves to you. They're not glorifying you for how great you are. They see what you're doing and they glorify God for what he's doing in you. Okay? So we don't add anything to our salvation. I don't think you think that. We cannot earn our salvation. I think you know that. And we do not repay salvation by pursuing holiness. But these well-intentioned, right-motivated, even truth-containing, they're not, they're, they're truth, but they're not the whole truth. It's, it's, it's not the fullness of the accuracy. So in an attempt to avoid this works-based, fleshy thing where we're pursuing righteousness in our own efforts, we go, I, I won't pursue anything at all. Or it's, it's covered under sin, or covered under grace, and so we just remain in sin. We become complacent to the reality of our own hearts. So instead of thinking of holiness as something you're adding to, some kind of thing that you're accumulating, a bar graph that you're hoping, once you get to here, then you'll finally be sanctified, erase all that, okay? You are holy. You are sanctified. Now remove the impurities from your life. Make war against those things. That can, they, they'll, they'll crop up, but get rid of them. Work against those things so that by the Spirit you are putting to death in you unrighteous things. Okay, so the Christian life is not some kind of hopeful thing. If I don't get to holiness, then I, then I won't get my inheritance. That's not what it says. It says God is building you up among all of the people who he's already sanctified. So live that way. Live that way. I have a Hebrews 3 here. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin manifests in many ways against our sanctification. The deceitfulness of sin it, it cuts both ways. If you think you've got it licked one way, it's definitely the other way because you've never licked sin this side of heaven. You've never got it figured out. The deceitfulness of sin is it's going to be right in your blind spot. It's going to be right in the place that you think you have all the victory. It says, scripture says this way, be careful if you think you stand, lest you fall. Be careful if you think that you are more righteous and holy than everyone else. Be careful and exhort one another as long as we're alive to say, hey, make sure that you're not um, overlooking sin. The deceits of sin come out in many ways. I did it. This says something like, I, I have actually achieved it. There's, no, there's nothing else in my life that, that the Holy Spirit would have me remove that I need to work on. It's saying, look, I'm, I'm better and probably equal to Jesus, right? Like, I did it. That's a deceit of sin that makes you ignore the places in your heart that are unholy. Okay? I can't do it. It doesn't matter how hard I try. Every time I go back to this thing, I, and I fail, and I fail, and I fail. I pray to God, asking to help me, and then I go back to the, so I can't do it, and so I give up. It must be okay. God must not want to help me through this thing. That is the deceit of sin to make you complacent in what you will have victory over in Christ. I need to do it. I need to do it. I, I, God hasn't done enough for me. I, I see this thing, and though uh, you know, he's, he accepted me the way that I am, um, I still have to achieve something to prove to him that I'm worth it. 
I have to achieve that. That's, that's pride. That's, that's sin in you saying that you can merit your, your salvation. Or there's nothing to do. We're just complacent about the sin in our life, and so we don't pursue it at all. And we, we allow other people to affirm us in that. That's a dangerous place to be. Don't allow the deceit of sin to keep you from pursuing spirit-enabled war against your flesh. So I'm going to end this morning here on our three tests, okay? Okay. If grace is nailed down for you, okay, and that makes sense, and you know you don't advance past grace, grace, yeah, it came as a gift. It was all God's doing. You didn't merit it, none of that. It's true, but you don't move on from there because every time that you come back and you fail again and your pride's wrecked, and you you realize that you're not enough. See, all of those were like, I will do it. I need to do it. I will, I will get there, or I have done it. You cannot fix you. You didn't save you. You will not retain your salvation. You, you, you. Grace says God. Flesh says me, okay? Nail down grace, then approach sanctification, okay? So are you pursuing spirit-driven effort for holiness, are you, are you trying to remove the impurities out of your life? Are you really pursuing that thing or are you just content to put the basket over the lamp, okay? Is there a true battle to kill sin in your life? Like if there's nothing in you that, that really has an issue when you're in sin that convicts you, you're missing the spirit. He will guide you into truth. He will convict you of unrighteousness. Now, it may take some time Sometimes we pridefully battle against that. But when, when somebody brings us the word of God or they show us our error, guess what grace is? It's repenting. That's what Jesus said to the church in Revelation. Turn back. Come back to your love. Do the works you did at first. Repentance goes back to grace, that you have this measure of sin that's being killed in your life. Finally, are you pursuing holiness and fighting sin, the old nature, while not departing grace, remaining in it? So I'm going to leave those with you this morning, okay? And I know this wasn't like the feel-good message you wanted for Super Bowl Sunday, but listen, I just want to encourage you. I, I said my goal this morning was not that you walk out of here saying I understand everything, remember? But just stoke the fire to pursue it. Because what Jesus is warning is essentially this. If you're going to be the kind of people that throw dirt and salt to make it less salty, or if you're going to cover the lamp with a basket, if you're going to make something less pure, I'll remove you from your place of witness, right? That's, that's why he says, if you, have a, if you have a light, you put it up so that everybody can see it. But, that's the lampstand, but there's no place of witness if it's covered by the basket. What, what is that exalting other than your flesh? But, if you're, if you're zealously pursuing righteousness and having some measure of victory, all the glory goes to God and God is pleased to put that on display as his people. So I hope that this was challenging and encouraging this morning. Let me pray.